I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, August 20th, 2012. It is my 24th wedding anniversary today. That's right, 24 years married to my beautiful bride, Barbara. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And what we do here on this program is we slow down and we take a listen to what people are saying and compare it to God's Word in context. The idea being this is that God what God has revealed is knowable and it's knowable when we read it in context and that one of the major ways in which people attempt and maybe they're self-deceived or they're purposely trying to deceive either way they're deceiving people by taking God's word ripping it out of context and then weaving it into their own narrative of their own theology rather than teaching what it says in context when you exegete. There's a huge difference between uh, proof texting by ripping th- stuff out of context as opposed to you know saying, you know saying what God has said or e- exegeting a biblical passage in context. That's why here at Fighting for the Faith, one of our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. And then the idea being is, is that there's these people who are ripping God's word out of context and are saying things that God's word aren't, it doesn't say, they're actually teaching falsely. And, uh, and, and in, some, some, in some cases, they're actually teaching a different gospel than the gospel that's revealed in Scripture. And the reason why that is dangerous is because God himself, you know, God the Holy Spirit, through the writings, of the Apostle Paul condemns and literally damns, the, the Greek word is anathema, damns those who teach a different gospel. 
And so uh, this is uh, it, this is not just a friendly little sparring match over things that don't matter. Ultimately, how we read God's word and what the gospel is, who Jesus is and what he's done for us, the, uh, those messages, they're either right or they're wrong. They're either telling us the truth or they're not telling us the truth. And when people are telling us that Jesus wants us to do this or this is the important thing or that's the important thing, and they're not paying careful attention to what Scripture has says in context, well, then what ends up happening is is that they're either deceiving themselves, they're self-deceived, they're they're they've been deceived and are passing along that deception, and they're deceiving others, and ultimately there is an eternal danger at stake here, and so we're trying to avert the eternal doom of people who are believing falsely about Christ, and admonish them to get back into God's Word, read it in context. And uh, and to listen carefully with discernment those who are teaching them. Not even the Apostle Paul got a, got a pass. In fact, the book of Acts says that the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because when the Apostle Paul showed up in Berea and preached the gospel to them, they tested against the word of God that they had. They only had the Old Testament to see if what he was saying was true, and they found it to be true. And so they're praised there in you know the book of Acts of as having a noble character for testing the Apostle Paul. So if the Apostle Paul doesn't get a get a pass, I don't get a pass. If I don't get a pass and the Apostle Paul doesn't get a pass, then your pastor doesn't get a pass. And, uh, you know, it, nobody gets a pass. Uh, no, everything gets to be measured against the canon, the C-O-N-O-N, of Scripture. And if it doesn't square with the canon, then it's not right. And uh, people that are not teaching correctly need to repent be forgiven for their false teaching, and then preach the gospel, preach sound biblical doctrine and and biblical exegesis. If they won't do such things, uh, then you ought not to uh, attend their churches. And by no means should you be giving them any money to support their ministry because their ministry isn't a true ministry of the Word of God. That's the idea. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got a quick um, prayer request. Um... In fact, let me just, uh, I won't tell you, we're going to talk about this and then later get to it. I'll just tell you the prayer request straight up. I received a Facebook message uh, from a gentleman down in the South Pacific in Papua New Guinea. And um, the the issue is that um, the radio station that we broadcast on, we believe it or not, there's a terrestrial station down there in the South Pacific that uh, broadcasts a lot of uh, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith and some of the programs that appear on uh, Pirate Christian Radio. They uh, broadcast them terrestrially. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the radio station that uh, that is broadcasting our stuff um, was smashed. Uh, their equipment was smashed to bits uh, by Muslims. and uh, And so... Uh, they are getting ready in the next couple of days to uh, go down there and replace out the equipment and get the the station back up and running. And so the prayer request is for their safety. Um, you know, you know this. So please pray for the uh, the folks. And they've they've asked to that I not broadcast their names because they're afraid that uh, uh, with that information that they they would be even more of a of a physical target. But uh, the Muslim, the Muslims have uh, basically <laughs> vandalized the station and taken them off the air, and so pray that God would protect them and protect the station as it continues to be a beacon for the Word of God. 
uh, down there in the South Pacific. So if you can pray for them, that would be great. Okay, now let's talk about what we're going to do on the rest of the program today. I've got a William Tapley update. Now, this is kind of interesting. Um, those of you who like to dabble in eschatological prophecies, um, then you, you, you may be familiar with the prophecy regarding Petrus Romanus, supposedly the last pope. Uh, there's a lot of scuttlebutt within uh, Roman Catholicism hey, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, the current pope, Pope Benedict, is the second to last pope. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this stuff. I, you know, this is one of those things from time to time I run across and I just go, you know, oh man, really? And you know, just don't know what to make of this stuff. But uh, but don't worry, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, has has figured out what the supposed prophecy is regarding Petrus Romanus, and we're going to be listening to Peter the Roman. Peter the Roman. Uh, we're going to be listening to his explanation of. The prophecy is supposedly a 900-year-old prophecy regarding the final pope, and uh, we'll get his insights into that. We'll then take a break, and then after our break, what we will be doing is we will be going down to uh, northwest Arkansas, to Bentonville, Arkansas, and uh, where there was a recent Todd Bentley revival. Todd Bentley uh, prayer and healing uh, miracle-working show and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the first few minutes of Bentley's first night. He was there for a couple of nights and um, point out some of the obvious problems with uh, Todd Bentley. But uh, we haven't done a, a full-blown Todd Bentley update in a while. Um, you remember he he had the big you know so-called outpouring uh, revival that was going on down in uh, the northern part of Florida uh, a few years ago. And then... Well, uh, wouldn't you know it, he uh, he ended up um, <clears throat> having an affair with the babysitter, his marriage blew up, and um, and then he went through a period of restoration uh, at the hands of the folks down there at Morningstar, and now he's on the loose, uh, he's been set free to go destroy people, <laughs> that's the only way I can put it. Um, and, and so we'll listen to that. Um, I've, you know, and, and, you know, I might move this other one up before the break, but, uh, by the way, I've got one more, an, a, one more, uh, attempt by the, a, an emergent progressive to say something substantive ab about God. We'll be, you know, this is in response to, uh, Tony Jones's challenge. And then we'll take a break and for sermon review today, we're going to be going to the Isle of Man. Um, you know, and uh, interesting, you know, locale, but we're going to be listening to a sermon by uh, Jonathan Stanfield of, commu of, uh, of Living Hope Community Church in the Isle of Man. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're going to be listening to his sermon from, it's not this year's sermon, it's a sermon from a year ago entitled Community uh, Spiritual Roots. You know, having spent the weekend, uh, the majority of my weekend was spent doing uh, research on fascism, again, you know, work for my PhD, but um, I'm tempted to run this through the uh, through a fascist uh, lens in my interpret in in my critique. I'm very tempted to go this way. I don't know. We'll see what we do with that in hour number two. And so, what I recommend doing: make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot, uh, and I mean a lot of ground that we need to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Prop up your feet if you have the ability to do so. If you want to wear fuzzy bunny slippers, they do enhance your listener experience. Of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind that the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to be enslaved to that uh, that fine gift that God has given us. Um, that would be kind of silly. So 
Here we go. Let's dive into the program. Here we go. Kill that music. So uh, that's our uh, William Tapley Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update. You know, kind of on as a side note, before I get into this, from time to time, I do get emails. Uh, asking me how I use the word Catholic, because if you've listened to the program, you've you've noticed that from time to time I use the word Catholic, and it, it, the idea is this: is that the the Bible actually teaches that the church is Catholic, small c, not the capital C, and so I think this is one of those words that the uh, if you are if you are actually a, a, a regenerated repentant, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Christian, then you have to understand what the, you know, biblically that there is this idea of Catholic. And so, in fact, let me read this email real quick. Since we're doing a William Tapley update and he's a Roman Catholic, I thought, you know, wedge this in here. Is a gal by the name of Andrea writes, and she says, I'm still waiting to learn where Catholic is in the Bible. I, I love your show. But you have left me with a question. I came out of the Catholic Church. Do you think that their teaching is correct or not? I'm concerned. Great question, by the way. And and I get emails like this from time to time. And so let me just wedge this in here real quick. And what I wrote her back, I, I wrote her back. Andrea said, no, the Roman Catholic Church is an apostate church with a false gospel and so many false man-made doctrines that it is the poster child for apostasy. The word Catholic... And the way I use it and the way it's been used historically means universal. So the ancient church understand, understood that it was a universal church in contrast to the ancient understanding that gods or religions uh, were territorial or only applied to specific geographic regions. So if you were living in a particular region, that was the region of, of Baal or the region of, you know, of, of the Egyptian gods or the, Gre- or the Greek gods, things like that. So the idea of Catholic it meant that Christianity was a, a, a religion that was to be believed universally. It was universally binding on all human beings across every human border, every culture. That's why Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So other places where the Catholicity of the church is really is uh, taught and biblically, you can find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, where the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the church in Corinth, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both uh, both their Lord and ours. So 
when I say I'm a Catholic, I'm a ca- I'm a Catholic, small c, not a Roman Catholic. In fact, all Christians who've been brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are Catholic, small c. And so I use the word because it belongs to the church, and Rome has no right to possess it. So I, you know, I I I believe we need to snatch that word back from the Roman Catholic Church because the uh, Bishop of Rome has. Uh, usurped his authority and abrogated authority to himself that is not given to him biblically, and I, I think the word Catholic we need to we need to snatch that thing back and use it properly, uh, even against the Roman Catholics. Anyway, so you know I just wanted to put that in there before we get to William Tapley's update. So with that, here's William Tapley trying to explain to us a 900 year old prophecy regarding Petrus Romanus. And like I said, if you know anything about like the uh, the, pro- the modern prophecy movement. The, there's a, there's a, there's Roman Catholics and Protestants who you know kind of both uh, look at these things and think that there's there's something to them. Obviously, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse would. But here's William Tapley. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. On this program, I want to talk about a very amazing prophecy which the Holy Spirit gave to St. Malachi almost 900 years ago. Now, this is not the prophet Malachi. This is the Roman Catholic Saint Malachi. Yeah, apparently, God the Holy Spirit made St. Malachi a prophet. And this was a prophecy about the last pope, who he called Peter the Roman, or in Latin, Petrus Romanus. And the reason there is a lot of speculation on YouTube about this Pope is because our current Pope, Benedict XVI, is the next to last Pope. And we all know that we are coming near the end of Pope Benedict's papacy. And of course, he turned 85 just this past spring. Well, yes, he's 85, but I just want to let you all know that the... The imminent demise of Pope Benedict has not officially been announced by the Vatican. Just want to let you all know that. The problem is there is a great deal of misinformation on YouTube about Petrus Romanus, the last pope. Now, I believe this prophecy to St. Malachi is extremely important for these end times for two reasons. First of all, it shows just how near we are to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And secondly, I believe this prophecy will tell us who the false prophet is. Well, that's some important data right there. False prophet referring to the book of Revelation. Now, the main disinformation being spread on YouTube and elsewhere on the Internet is whether... Petrus Romanus is a good pope or an evil pope. And I don't want to prejudice you with my opinion or the opinion of the three people I am going to present today. Instead, I want you to decide for yourself. I want you to read the prophecy. I want you to decide, is this last pope, the next pope, the final one in St. Malachi's prophecy, is he good or is he evil? In the final persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman. And in- okay, he's currently reading from the so-called prophecy of Saint 
Malachi. Latin, that's Petrus Romanus, who will nourish his sheep amid many tribulations, after which the city of seven hills will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge the people. The end. So, how do you interpret this passage? Does it- um, <laughs> I don't, because I question whether or not St. Malachi was a prophet. How's that? Sound to you as if Petrus Romanus is a good pope or an evil pope. Now I will give you my opinion. I don't see how he can be anything but a good pope. Well, that, 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 you know, that just puts me at ease, I'm sure. But, you see, the question that I have is, biblically, again, where does the Bible say that the church is to have a pope? Yeah, it doesn't. It actually doesn't say that the church is to have a pope. And that, uh, that, that Matthew 16 passage isn't saying, that Jesus isn't setting Peter up as a pope. Church history bears this out in, in you know, Peter wasn't a pope. The church had no pope. The church's head is Christ, not the pope. And the key phrase is that he will nourish his sheep. Now, any Bible scholar should be able to tell you that a good shepherd feeds his sheep. This is what Jesus told Peter to do. Feed my sheep. There is nowhere in the Bible that a good shepherd does not feed his sheep, or that an evil shepherd feeds his sheep. Yes, I, I'm tracking with you. Yeah, you're definitely exegeting the so-called prophecy of St. Malachi. Yeah, Okay, sure. Therefore, I believe Petrus Romanus must be a good pope. And this is critical in our understanding of this passage. Pope Benedict, our current pope, is the 111th Pope in St. Malachi's list. And our next Pope, Peter the Roman, is the 112th Pope, and he is a good Pope. However, there are Bible scholars, like, for example, Irvin Baxter, who disagree. And St. Malachi had said that the 112th Pope would be the last Pope and that he would be an evil Pope. Now, I have watched quite a few of Urban Baxter's videos. And yeah. he never explains how he comes to this conclusion that Petrus Romanus is an evil pope. I just don't see it. Well, uh, I would say that the fact that people refer to him as the black pope might mean that's, how they're, that's why they're interpreting it that way. But why on earth would I want to weigh into something like this? Okay, I want to point something out here. Um, my primary beef with all of this stuff is that um, who cares if William Tapley is right or some other guy on YouTube is right regarding Petrus Romanus. I don't see. Here's the idea. Um, Will you spend eternity in heaven or hell if you believe that Petrus Romanus is going to be a good pope as opposed to a bad pope, or if you believe he's a bad pope as opposed to being a good pope. Yeah, neither one of these things really matters at all. In fact, you can sit here and try to divine the prophetic tea leaves regarding 
Petros Romanus all you want, but ultimately this is a distraction. Yeah, this I firmly believe that one of Satan's time-honored ploys is to get the church distracted, okay? Because, I mean, what a better thing to do than have people arguing with each other as to whether or not Petrus Romanus is going to be a good pope or a bad pope when um, the church doesn't have a pope. Uh, Biblically, there's no warrant for such an office. No office was ever established, and it wasn't until the you know, until the latter part of the first millennia that the Pope usurped his authority. And you get what I'm saying? Anyway, so, I mean, what does this do? Well, it distracts us. It distracts us from proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Um, It distracts us from making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching the full counsel of the Word of God. St. Malachi's prophecy is not the same as the book of Malachi in Scripture. The book of Malachi in Scripture is truly from a real prophet, whereas St. Malachi's prophetic abilities, um, yeah, um, just I haven't had the opportunity to spend time really looking as to whether or not St. Malachi is a true prophet or a false prophet. I'm too busy preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and proclaiming and defending the biblical faith. You see what I'm saying here? This is... This is ultimately a major distraction. According to St. Malachi's own vision, Petrus Romanus, the final pope, nourishes his sheep. That is the sign of a good shepherd, of a good pope. Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep. However, Irvin Baxter is not alone in this false interpretation. Just this past spring, Tom Horn and Chris Putnam published a 500-page book called Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here. Wow, I missed that one. And they... 500 whole pages, I mean... ...say the same thing. In fact, Tom Horn says that this Petrus Romanus, the final pope, the good pope, is the false prophet. And the next pope is the final one on a 900-year-old prophecy. So imagine how historical this moment is with regard to to end times Bible prophecy. By the way, the the prophecy tells us that he will be the false prophet of uh, biblical fame who will help give rise to the Antichrist. Now, I admit I have not read Tom Horn's book. Maybe he gives... Yeah, that's okay. Neither have I. I've been kind of busy. ...some evidence that Petrus Romanus is an evil pope. I have watched most of his videos on YouTube, however, and he never gives any facts to support his position. How do you give facts on a non-biblical prophetic source? (sighs) Anyway, you you, you get the point. Okay, so we can go back and forth all we want. Is Petrus Romanus a good pope or bad pope? Is he really the one who leads to the Antichrist, or does he fight the Antichrist? Uh, really? Again, um, this is, well, you know, kind of a typical ploy, and the ploy is satanic distraction. I mean, I really think that's the idea here, and that people are spending so much time. A 500-page book on Petrus Romanus. Great. Um, yeah, what does this have to do with the Bible again? I'm not exactly sure. 
Anyway, moving along. Talk about distractions. Um, these are the sounds of the uh, emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra and their rendition of Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra, conducted by Doug Paget, Tony Jones on second fiddle, um, Brian McLaren playing timpani. Rob Bell playing kazoo. Uh, You'll notice that they have been set free from the limiting, binding, inauthentic, modernist definitions of notes and are just letting themselves be carried along by the winds of the spirit as they play this fantastic piece. All right, uh, th- that, that's in honor of, well, our latest attempt at a emergent, postmodern-type uh, progressive to take up the, the challenge thrown down by um, Tony Jones. Uh, and, you know, we, we've covered it here on previous episodes of Fighting for the Fake. Just go back to the last week's archives if you haven't been brought up to speed on this yet. Uh, Tony Jones sent out basically a challenge to progressive, emergent, postmodern types for them to say something substantive about God, to which I think is a completely fruitless endeavor. Why? Because uh, the postmodern postmodernism is, well, it's nothing more than radical skepticism, and they've poured all of their acid of radical skepticism upon the biblical text themselves and spend all their time attacking, deconstructing, undermining, and trying to tell us why we shouldn't be taking it literally. And the surprising shock it to Tony Jones is that now that n- none of these postmodern emergent uh, liberal progressive uh, radical skeptics have anything substantive or declarative to say about God, and to which I basically say, well, duh, that's the direct result of cutting yourself off from the only source we have authoritatively about anything about God, okay? You're left with just absolute nothing, which is kind of the point here, because... um Pastor Keith Anderson of uh, Upper Dublin Lutheran Church out there in Pennsylvania, an ELCA congregation. This is he is not a confessional Lutheran by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, ELCA congregations like this, they're linos, they're Lutheran in name only. They don't actually subscribe to the confessions of the Lutheran Church, or, nor do they believe in the authority of the Bible and things like that. So um, anyway, um, yeah, Pastor Keith Anderson. Um, has decided to weigh in, and the name of his piece is entitled God as Silence. Yeah, see, what happens when you attack the Bible, you can't say anything substantive, so here's his attempt at saying saying something substantive about God. God as Silence. So here we go. In August 2010, I traveled to Chicago for the ELCA conference, Follow Me, Sharing the Gospel in a 2.0 World. Uh, One of the highlights was catching up with my friend and colleague, Pastor Martin Malzahn, and having dinner with Martin and and his then-fiancée, Vanessa, during our meal. Vanessa asked me, so what is your image of God? What kind of question is that? What is your image of God? 
since when did I personally have an image of God? I, I don't. What do you mean by such a question? There is the image of God, but it isn't mine or yours or it based on any subjective thing. Anyway, sorry, let me continue reading. So, <clears throat> yeah, he, uh, uh, Pastor Anderson writes, he says, While God is, of course, right at the heart of things and our image or images of God are such a powerful influence on the way and the ways we live our faith, we rarely ask or get asked this question. For Lutherans, I think this seems like an impolite theological question. There might be too much sharing involved. The Bible is filled with various images of God. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God walks through the Garden of Eden, appears to Moses in a burning bush, speaks to Elijah in a still small voice. Jesus is God and an image of God. So is the Holy Spirit who appears as a flame, wind, and a dove. Like the Bible, we all have multiple images of God and we ca- that we carry around. Images that help us relate to God in different ways and at different times. So when Vanessa asked her question, I had to pause. I closed my eyes there in the restaurant and looked into my heart. Really? You can do that in a restaurant? I didn't know you could... Any, <clears throat> sorry. It, it only took a few seconds, though it felt much longer. I opened my eyes and look up, looked up and said, Silence. My image of God is silence. The answer surprised Vanessa, and in reality, it surprised me. It was one of those moments where the answer you give, what you say, actually surprises you and gives you new insight about what you really think or you or believe. My image of God is silence. I've never given that answer before. I've never even thought of it myself. I never included it among my images of God, but it was true, and it was right. I explained the best that I could. For me, my deepest experience of prayer and my preferred way to pray is silent prayer. Prayer without words. In silence, I try to open my heart to God just as God's heart is always open to me. It's a wordless communication. I I, I just can't offer up any of my thoughts, feelings, concerns, and hopes to God without naming, enumerating, formulating, or editing for me. It can be a prayer experience of great freedom. For me, the image of God is silence. does not connote absence or emptiness. The way we often think of silence like an awkward pause, a lull in the conversation, something to be avoided as the lack of something, just the opposite. The great Lutheran theologian Paul Tillich... No, Paul Tillich was not a great Lutheran theologian. Paul Tillich was a liberal apostate. Big difference between the two, by the way. Described God as the ground upon which all being is based. For me, the silence connotes the constant presence described by Tillich. Silence is underneath everything. Oh, under the layers of words, music, uh, noise, music, television, our daily lives. Under everything is silence. It is always there, but is obscured, just like God. Okay, um... Yeah, the Bible does not describe God as silence. I I really wish the people who really felt that silence is the way of describing God would be more like their God and remain silent. I mean, that's just the way I see it, because the God that's revealed in the Bible, well, he's not silent. He's anything but. I mean, 66 books right there, and man, are those you know books packed with words that God has spoken and revealed about himself. Um, that those aren't words that were to just toss aside, deconstruct, 
or um, somehow not consider authoritative. Jesus considered the word of God to be authoritative, said that it would last, even though heaven and earth would pass away, the word of God would not. And he said that if you love me, you will abide in his words, that you'll guard his words. Um, So um, those people who really believe that God is silence need to be a lot more like their God and remain silent. But the, so there you go, an, another attempt at uh, saying substantive about God from a person who denies the authority of God's word. Um, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But then again, you know, I, I don't know how on earth you're supposed to say anything substantive about God if you've attacked, deconstructed, redefined, and basically demythologized the Bible so that you don't trust it or believe it. Instead, you just sit there and go, what to do with this? I can't trust it. I, There it is, all this revelation that God has given us. It's all God-breathed according to Scripture, but they don't trust it. Yeah, so there you go. So what is God? God is, well, silence. I don't know what that is. God is silence. Wow, that's not even close to profound and or deep. It's just banal. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We have got a Todd Bentley update. Talk about distractions. Uh, don't want to miss it. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles the pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. 
Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Uh, warning, um, pay close attention to and avoid people who are going to take your eyes off of Scripture, off of Christ, off of the Gospel, 
and have you chasing after the weirdest things. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Uh, The more subscribers and crew members that we have, uh, the more it levels out our giving, at least makes it predictable so that we can properly budget our expenses and our growth. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Hi, uh, it's been a while since we've talked about Todd Bentley, but did you know Todd Bentley recently did like some kind of a healing, miracle-working Holy Spirit glory show up in Bentonville, Arkansas? It is true. Um, see what you make can make of this. Come on, give a mighty shout to Jesus. Come on, we love you, Jesus. Yeah, you guys are hungry, hungry for the glory, hungry for the presence and power of God. We're just excited to be here with you. This is our first time in Arkansas. Hungry for the glory. Huh. What's that? I got to say, I got to say, preaching, you know, around the world last 15 years, you know, in all the places, maybe about two or three different states in America we've never been to. And I thought, Lord, I've never even received an invitation in all those years, 15 years of preaching, never even received an invitation that I can remember to Arkansas. And lo and behold, I thought, well, Lord, I I don't even know that there's anything down there, you know, in Arkansas, that I would even go to Arkansas. I, I said, I, I know something about Bob Jones receiving a, his mantle from the Lord in Arkansas. And uh, I, I said something about Larry Randolph in Arkansas. He received a what in Arkansas? What's, uh, huh? Oh, and I heard, some old, I heard some old stories. But I said, other than that, I can't think of any of the circles, friends that I have in ministry, any of the places that I've been where I've heard people talking about the move of God in Arkansas. I mean, I thought, Lord, why is it we never hear about the outpouring, the move of God, revival in Arkansas? And here I show up, and I get all this prophetic stuff from the Holy Ghost. Yeah, now listen to them. Wow. Todd Bentley's getting all this prophetic prophetic stuff from the Holy Ghost. Really? So who is the focus of this guy's... um, Preaching, <laughs> Todd Bentley, right? Because he's the prophetic man of God who's going to help manifest the glory of God and give you prophetic insights that, well, he's been receiving directly from God. Uh-huh. And, and then I show up and there's just so much Holy Ghost, open heaven and hunger. And, and it's almost like it's been a hidden diamond in the rough, like... I said, has this been here the whole time? You know, in fact, 
And then I started to find out just how much anointing and favor really was on the region. And I, I said, not only somebody told me, they said, you know, this is the birthplace of, of Walmart, you know. And I thought I had a prophecy about revival breaking out in Walmart. And uh, last summer we were in a 30-day outpouring in Virginia. And uh, one of the young ladies on our team her name is Sophie. She was 16 years old. She decided to go to the Walmart and start pulling people out of wheelchairs. We made a video. Revival broke out in the Walmart. People getting pulled out of wheelchairs right in the in the aisle and people getting healed in the Walmart. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's awesome. And then I, I found out, you know, somebody, I thought I was going to come to the place, you know, just some sawmills or something, you know. And I said, what's going to be down there? Some sawdust and going down to Arkansas. I don't know what to expect. And, I found out just how much favor that the wealth of the nations is here. You know, and I heard, I heard that there's something like 47 or 49 of the, you know, Fortune 500 companies just in the area, in the region. And I, I said, yeah, it makes me wonder. I mean, did that have any bearing on whether or not he decided to go and speak there in Bentonville? The wealth of the nations is in Bentonville. Hmm. Maybe if I put on a miracle show and convince these people I was hearing directly from God, maybe some of that wealth of the nations would end up in my account. No, he wouldn't do that, would he? said all of this I, I never knew there was such favor and glory and, and the wealth of the nations on Arkansas it's been like a, a hidden gem and let me tell you it really reminded me of the dream that I had last night before I came and I had really you had a dream last night just before you came to Arkansas how convenient I had an unusual dream and I don't have dreams like this but I had a dream where I saw a shaft it was a beam of light and I know I was dreaming about the glory Whenever I dream about the Shekinah light of his presence, and uh, it was an awesome dream, and there was a pulpit just like this, and nobody was in the pulpit. In fact, I knew I was ministering and I knew I was speaking, but it was unusual because I wasn't even in the pulpit, and I thought nobody was on the platform. The only thing that I saw... The idea of Todd Bentley in a pulpit, in a real pulpit, the place where God's word is supposed to be taught and proclaimed... Just yeah, that mental picture, I'm having a hard time putting that one in my mind. Let me, let me remind you again, again of what God the Holy Spirit said through the prophet Jeremiah, a real prophet. Here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And, and to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see, to hear his word? Who has paid attention to his words and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The angle of the Lord will not turn back until he is executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Yeah, Todd Bentley sounds exactly like the kind of prophet that God the Holy Spirit warned us about through the prophet Jeremiah. Strange, huh? Was the Bible opened 
in the pulpit and nobody was on the platform. I knew I was ministering, but for whatever the reason, I was in the front row having a conversation with somebody. Maybe it was Michael or somebody. And I was talking about the glory of God that was being poured out, that the King of glory was coming in. And and it was so holy. It was like God was moving in such a sovereign presence. You just didn't want to touch it. You, you Everybody had to back off. And it was just, let's watch the glory of God move. Let's just watch the presence of God move. Jesus is going to get all the glory. It was just one of those meetings. It was like the service was running itself. And I could see in the pulpit was like a, a shaft or a beam of light that came down. And then out of the glory, I saw it was like a gemstone. And it fell out of the glory and it landed on the Bible. And everybody in the meeting was talking about, look at that diamond. And it wasn't just a gemstone. It was actually a diamond, a blue diamond. And everybody was saying, look at the diamond on the Bible. And uh, I woke up from the dream and I thought, what an unusual dream. I dreamed about a blue diamond in Arkansas. I said, why would I be dreaming about diamonds? And I get off the airplane and I start sharing the dream with our driver. And he said, well, didn't you know that other than just, you know, retail, that there's, uh, you know, a whole lot of mining that goes on here. Some pretty big mines here in Arkansas. And uh, one of them happens to be a diamond mine that, that harvests blue diamonds. And I thought, really? That's unusual? Blue diamonds? It's not as if you couldn't have found this out on, like, the internet using Google. (sighs) And and then another word that I had, and I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but I had a three-hour dinner last night with Bob Jones. And uh, we wanted to talk about Arkansas. We wanted to talk about the coming healing revival. And uh, we started talking about the, the, the main message that I had or the word that Bob had that we talked about for three hours was hope. And he kept talking about hope, 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 hope. And I'll tell you what it means in a minute. And then when I was talking today, they said, you know where that mine is? One of the mines anyways, where they harvest diamonds. It's in a town called Hope. I said, blue diamonds in a town called Hope. That's the message I have, hope. And I dreamed about the blue diamond. So I just knew that this was going to be a Holy Ghost setup, especially when Bob Jones told me, you know, it was about 45 minutes, maybe an hour down the road. He said, when I was seven, maybe nine years old, he goes, I don't remember whether I was seven or nine. And, uh, you know, Bob's 82 years old now. And he said, but when I was seven or nine years old, I saw a white horse come out of heaven. And uh, I was so scared, I started running from this white horse. And uh, there was an angel on the horse. It was the first time of three times. That- yeah, really? Wow. Okay. So an angel on a white horse is coming. And, and you were, okay, yeah, wow, wow. This is quite amazing. I've ever seen Gabriel in my life. I said, well, that's pretty good. Three times seeing Gabriel. He said, the first time that he came, he came on a white horse. And he, he got in my face and blew a trumpet in my face. And uh, I said, did the angel say anything? He said, no, Gabriel didn't say anything, but he did come with a mantle. And, you know, he started to uncover this mantle. And to make a long story short, he said it was a seer prophet's mantle and a miracle mantle from a prophet in Zimbabwe, Africa. I didn't know that they had zip codes on them. Who knew? And I said, so, Bob, you're saying your mantle that came to you in Arkansas came from a prophet in Zimbabwe, Africa. It was really weird. The only mantle I've ever had was a mantle that I bought for my um, 
uh, well, propane uh, lamp that I use when I go camping. I buy those little mantles and, you know, and I, I they say Coleman on it. I mean, who knew? And uh, he said, yeah, that's where my mantle came from. And he said, and when I died, I saw it return to Africa. And so I said, well, you know, it's just a, I heard that testimony before, but I, I didn't quite put it together like that. And he said, when the angel came and he blew the trumpet in my face, I was so scared that I ran back to my house and hid in my house for three days. Can you imagine you're just seven years old, nine years old, and heaven opens, you're, and, and you, don't, you don't know that you're having a vision or a dream. And then all of a sudden, this angel comes riding down on a white horse. Blows the trumpet in his, his face and gives him his call as a prophet. But it started right here, he said, about 45 minutes, an hour down the road from where we're preaching right now. I thought that was pretty significant that we were coming to Arkansas. And I, after my meeting with Bob last night, I, I said, I'm going to get as much impartation as I can, Bob, because we're going to go and release it to, uh, down there in Rogers or wherever we are. Hallelujah. <laughs> I heard about a whole bunch of cities that kind of all run together. I'm not even going to try to say what they all are. But uh, anyways, one of the interesting things about the word that Bob had was he kept talking about hope. And and before I get ahead of myself, I'm going to just give you this uh, uh, snapshot. This is called a bonus because I'm just giving you some prophetic stuff to kind of set the tone and the atmosphere for where we're going tonight and tomorrow. Say, I'm ready for a whole lot from the Holy Ghost. Wow, they're they're ready. They're ready and really well from Todd Bentley of all people. Who knew? You know, you got to understand. This is the first meeting that I've done in over thirty days. I took a thirty day rest after two and a half. Yeah, who's he preaching about again? Yeah, himself. Uh, he's he's behind the pulpit there at that church in Northwest Arkansas. Um. But he's not opening God's word. He's there to share with them the glory and uh, the visions and the dreams and the prophetic insights that God the Holy Spirit has given him. He's not teaching the word. He's no, well. The, what is this? This is an ultimate, uh, utter, tragic distraction away from Scripture, away from Christ, away from the real Holy Spirit. Because really, the the job of the real Holy Spirit, he likes pointing people to Jesus. And uh, can basically convicts the world of sin and unbelief. You, that doesn't seem to be the work of the Holy Spirit that Bentley's preaching. But then again, Bentley is not um, preaching the biblical Holy Spirit, nor the biblical Jesus. He's preaching himself, really. Months of revival. Uh, Jess and I, Michael and Amanda Christie, we had the honor and the privilege of serving the revival that's happening right now in Korea. We spent two and a half months um, in Korea in seven cities and uh, connected with over 755 different churches and ministries. And we just went over there to be in Korea for a few weeks and uh, we ended up staying two and a half months. And it was a move of God, a grassroots move of God, very organic, and the beginning of something. In other words, you were able to fool a lot of people into believing that you were hearing from God the Holy Spirit. And it was a lucrative endeavor that made it so that you were able to stay there to you know, milk them for two months. Got it. Yeah, I get it. And uh, it's still burning. We're going to be back in Korea uh, in November for another month. It'll be our third visit. And uh, I don't know what it's going to look like yet. Um, but it's going to touch all of Southeast Asia. And uh, we've got some amazing things happening right now uh, in that part of the world, including uh, a real harvest in the Muslim world. And uh, 
this October, this October, we're going to be over in Pakistan. And uh, we're expecting, you know, 30,000 people in Pakistan. We're believing God for 10. Uh, no. Serious? You're going to go to Pakistan. You're going to ruin all those people to biblical Christianity. Unbelievable. Of thousands of decisions for Christ, and uh, I really had to hear from the Lord to go to Pakistan. I mean, it's probably in the top five most dangerous countries you could go, and we have an open door. A lot of people can have opportunity, but we really have an open door that the Lord is in that we can see an awesome harvest in Pakistan and now the Middle East. That we're being invited into different places. And so a lot is happening. We believe Korea is going to be a real strategic uh, uh, hub of revival to reach into Indonesia, Malaysia. That, that kind of revival is not the kind of revival any nation needs. Why? Because do you think Todd Bentley is bringing the biblical gospel? No. Is he preaching the biblical Holy Spirit? No. He's preaching dreams and visions and, and well, putting on a miracle healing road show. Um, right. You know, Todd Bentley is to Christianity what heresy is to orthodoxy. You, you get what I'm saying? Anyway, and what is all of this? And there's all these people, you know, who think that Todd Bentley is a man of God and he hears from the God, the Holy Spirit. No, he doesn't. Todd Bentley is, is an agent of the evil one who distracts people away from the biblical Jesus, from the biblical gospel, and from the biblical revealed Holy Spirit. Basically, he's a false prophet, false teacher, and how do I know? Because he's not pointing people to Jesus. He's not pointing people to Christ's word. The people who follow Todd Bentley despise God's word. And he's not bringing them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He's doing something completely different. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, sermon review from the Isle of Man. Never reviewed a sermon from there, but you don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! 
Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Buddy Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time coming right up. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an Eagle Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's sermon comes to us via Living Hope Community Church on the Isle of Man. Um, I had to look this up on Google Maps. The Isle of Man is in the Irish Sea between the United Kingdom and, uh, and Ireland. Anyway, the pastor presiding over the sermon, his name is Jonathan Stanfield, and the name of the sermon is Community Spiritual Roots. Now, I'm probably going to be reviewing more than one sermon from this uh, church and sooner rather than later. Fascinating sermon. Uh, We're going to be looking at this through the lens of collectivism, folkish ideology, otherwise known as fascist thought. I know that's a little bit on the um, not polite thing to do, but... um, If you don't already uh, know what I've said in my lecture, resistance is futile, you'll be assimilated by the community. Go back and listen to that episode of Fighting from the Faith for May 11th of 2012. What you're going to hear in this sermon is going to pick up on a lot of those similar themes. And uh, as a result of that, this has become a church that I'm going to keep on my radar and uh, come back to on a semi-regular basis. So without any further ado, let me kill the music. Here is uh, Jonathan Stanfield, his sermon entitled Community, Spiritual Roots. Just so you know, this was preached in 2011, early, uh, like January 2011. This wasn't exactly recent, but not that far long ago that it doesn't matter. So here we go. Uh, Here again, uh, Community, Spiritual Roots, Jonathan Stanfield. Let's do it. Welcome to the Living Hope Community Church Podcast. We are one family with multiple locations. For more information and other great messages, please visit www.livinghope.im. Love God, love people, love life. Well, we have real confidence that in 2011, it's going to be another year of breakthrough in our own lives and also in the family of the church. Last week, I shared with you a verse from Daniel which said, those who knew their, know their God will do right? Mighty or great exploits. And so it's vital that each of us make a commitment this year to get to know God a whole lot more deeply. Because the the degree to which you know God, I don't mean know about him or read about God. So, okay, I'm going to point this out here. I I can't help but go focus here. Uh, By the way, Real quick history lesson. The fascist governments that came up in, uh, great, in, in continental Europe grew out of what was called the folkish milieu. And you, you spell it with a V, not a F. But um, the idea here is, is that you go back, if you want to get the broad categories, go back to the May 11th episode of Fighting for the Faith. 
entitled Resistance is Feudal, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. I lay out the basic worldview, uh, the counter-enlightenment worldview that is that embraced by a lot, well, in fact, the seeker-driven movement as a whole, and that was brought to them via Peter Drucker. Okay, notice what he said there. He's not, he, you need to know God, and you don't get to know God by reading about him. He's Notice what he's talking about is some kind of an experiential knowledge. So already, right out of the chute, we have what smells and tastes like an irrational philosophy, an experiential philosophy that seems to be closely related to postmodernity and folkish or fascist type of uh, thinking. So let me back that up again because I want you to hear it because it's it's this is I know it seems like kind of a weird minor point, but how you know what you know and what you're talking about God, this all matters. So let's let's listen again. To know God a whole lot more deeply because the the degree to which you know God, I don't mean know about him or read about God. You know, I've read the Bible back to front and I've read a lot about him or I hear a lot of messages about him or in my small group they talk a lot about him. But actually those who know God, not know God, are going to do great exploits. Okay, so um, my question immediately for Jonathan would be, um, can I... Know God without reading about him? Is somehow reading about him contrary to or in conflict with real knowledge of God? Already we got to, this is fascinatingly bad. And so in order to develop, you know, a healthy life, we need to get deep spiritual roots. And at Unite, I shared with you that really the starting point, the primary point. So notice deep spiritual roots Apparently, that's not achieved through uh, reading the Bible. It's uh, apparently achieved a different way. Please, we need to get our roots into, as we kick off this year, is get rooted into God's love. We need to get a deep a grasp of the deepness and the breadth and the length and the height of God's love. And how am I supposed to do that? apart from scripture because the way you're talking about scripture reading the bible is somehow going to get in the way of me knowing the breadth and the depth and the whatever of god's love you see what i'm saying that's what paul says because if you get rooted in the god's love he says then you'll be filled with the fullness of all the measure that god wants to do in your life i'd like to see that passage in context please and as we do that, we'll get filled with purpose. As we get rooted in God's love, we'll get... We'll get filled with purpose. Whew, weird. Filled with purpose, because Paul said, it's the love of Christ which compels me to do things, not guilt or fear or anything like that, or low self-esteem. It's the, it's the love of God which compels me. And, and that's understood through the gospel. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Forgive me for quoting a Bible passage that explains the love of Christ. So as we get rooted in the God's love, we get filled with purpose and destiny and faith. Filled with destiny. Okay, um, Jonathan, you're not exegeting a passage here. This sounds to me like you have an ideology 
and you're proof texting that ideology by ripping verses out of context to try to make it look like your ideology is biblical doctrine. It's two different things. And hope for the future as well. Well, I want to start off this morning's message by just showing you a little clip from the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. Let's give. Some- so we're going to, we're not going to start in God's word. No, we're going to start with a swipe against God's word. That somehow that gets in the way of understanding God better. And now we're going to look at the Bar- a clip from the Barcelona Olympics. Now I love the Olympics. I I am an Olympic file. Have been since I attended the uh, 1984 uh, Summer Olympics in Los Angeles when I was growing up. I just you know. From that moment forward, I was an incurable Olympic file. But somehow I'm just thinking here that probably God's word is going to be more important than a clip from the Barcelona Olympics. That's just my guess. In volume two. Derek Redmond, the best form he's shown since he broke the British record. He was in great shape, you know. He, he was had a chance, possibility of maybe getting a medal there. The Cuban Hernandez has got uh, Redmond to aim at, and so too in lane number three is Steve Lewis, but Redmond's got off very fast indeed, and so too is Ismail of Qatar. Down the back straight, he's the fractional leader. Bada of Nigeria has gone very quickly, and Redmond has broken down. He's on the track, kneeling down, and Derek Redmond, on his injury problem, the jinx has struck again. He just wants to finish. His dad's trying to run onto the track to stop him. He's going to tell him, Derek, don't. The old man went to put his arms around me, and I was just about to try and push him off. Can, can I ask the obvious question? How is um, one of those kind of emotional storytelling, um, you know, little bios they do during the Olympics on athletes. How is that supposed to me to have, how is that supposed to help me have deep spiritual roots in the love of God? I, I'm not seeing the connection. Because I thought it was something else. I didn't see every sort of jog from behind. And uh, he said, look, you don't need to do this. You can stop now. You haven't got nothing to prove. And I said, oh, I have, you know, get me back into lane five. I want to finish. Now in the greatest arena in sport, he's getting the cheer of the games. I would never. You know, as you reflect on the story of Derek Redmond, there you start to realize how vital it is to have the right people around you in life. You know? Okay, um, yeah, Derek Redmond. Um, his story is not in the Bible. You know, life is like a race. And in life, you know, we're going to have obstacles, we're going to have setbacks, we're going to have disappointments and all sorts of things. But as you know, I start to kind of look at that story, you can look at it a little bit longer as well on YouTube, etc. You start to realize, you know, when you get the right people around you, inputting your life, supporting in your life, they're going to make sure that you finish the race set before you. Okay. Uh, when you get the right people around you, they're going to make sure that... Again, this sounds very folkish, very fascistic. Just, I'm just saying that as somebody who's spent a lot of time, a lot of years now studying this topic. And the people with whom we share our lives, the community to which we are committed are, are, are just like soil. And it's the soil that... The people that we share our lives with are just like soil? 
Uh-oh. It's going to determine how well we develop and how well we grow and the type of fruits that we're going to bear in life. Okay. As a child... Now, <clears throat> hang on a second here. Um, I want to take a look at the parable of the sower and the seeds. If you have your Bible... Flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Already we got a problem because, did you hear what he just said? I I highlighted it as he was saying it. The people we surround ourselves are like soil. The community that we are a part of is soil. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying in in the parable of the sower and the seeds. In fact, here's, uh, here's here's one of the primary rules of good exegesis, okay? Is when... When God uses symbolic language to say something, uh, or when Jesus gives a parable, if he gives the interpretation of the parable, his interpretation stands, not your interpretation or my interpretation. We are not to have a different interpretation than the interpretation that Jesus gives. Does that make sense? So uh, Matthew chapter 13, I'll start at verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat, sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." Okay, so there it is, the parable in all of its symbolic language. Okay, and the disciples just went, well, huh? You know, they did did not understand what it is that Jesus was saying. So they actually went to Jesus and asked for an interpretation. And here's what Jesus says. Here's how he unpacks his own parable, Matthew 13, verse 18. So here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for the so, uh, what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he singular singular has no root in himself singular but endures for a while when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he, singular, falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, it is the one, singular, who hears the word and understands it, he, singular, indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So the soils in the parable represent individual 
humans, not the community. So, man, this is a subtle, subtle thing that's going on here. You have to pay real close attention to Jonathan Stanfield's uh, language. I'm going to back it up just a little bit because I want you to hear how he takes the the, the, the language of the parable of the sower and makes the good soil a group rather than an individual. That's, that is a telling thing. Listen. And the people with whom we share our lives, the community to which we are committed are, are, are just like soil. And it's the... Notice the community is the soil. You, okay, um, Jonathan, you're not exegeting here. This, this sounds like ideology soil that's going to determine how well we develop and how well we grow and the type of fruit that we're going to bear in life. As a child, I was a little bit of an entrepreneur. My dad and I, I'm not comparing myself to Stuart Baggs at all. (laughs) I did better than him as a child. Uh, My dad and I would uh, grow vegetables together. And when my dad went to work, I would secretly harvest the vegetables and go around all of our neighbors, you know, selling tomatoes and potatoes and carrots and all sorts of things like that. You know, it was a great way to get spending money for the summer. But in order to ensure that you had a bumper crop, a, a rich crop, you had to ensure like that the soil was rich. And so our soil, we always got plenty of manure and stuff like that. And, and one of our techniques for good growth was dried blood, you know? Yep, you with me? Yeah, some of you gardeners know what I'm talking about. See, but they drove the dogs in the neighborhood mad. You know, you, you fill the greenhouse soil with all this dry blood, and then suddenly these dogs would go bananas because they smelt, you know, blood in the air. But in order to get the right type of fruit, we had to have the right type of soil. You know, Jesus said something along those lines. In Luke 8, he says, A farmer went out to sow some of his seed, and... And he talked about the different types of soil that fell onto, and he said, still other seeds fell on good soil. And it came up and it yielded a crop a hundred times more than that which he had sown. Okay, want to point something out here. He didn't read the parable. He cut right to the section of the parable he wants to teach about. Now, Jesus interprets this parable in Matthew. So Jesus' interpretation still stands, even for when it's told in the Gospel of Luke. Can I just say to you this morning, get this, soil matters. Soil matters. And when you have something planted in healthy, fertile soil, you can be just about guaranteed that you're going to have explosive growth. Jesus here talks about a hundredfold growth. Now, just look at the size of this guy's lake and the other guy's pumpkins and stuff like that. It's huge, you know. The difference between, you know, the, the little ones that we get in our garden or Chris and Carol, you know, they're the sign of the good life. You know, ever seen that? That's a Chris and Carol they're like. They've kind of got that age in life where they kind of just... Life revolves around a little vegetable product. Well, the difference between, you know, the, the good life and this type of harvest is the type of soil that they're growing in. I don't know whether you've realized or not, but the truth is that the people that you surround yourself with, the community that you surround yourself with, well, the truth is they are very much like soil. Kate, notice again here, 
the community you surround yourself is very much like soil. That's not what this text is saying. Something is going really squirrely here because all of the individual singular words that are used, he is like the one who, all of that has been chucked. He's not paying any attention to what the scripture says here. And he's inserting this communal idea of the soils, but that's not the, the communal aspect is not what's being taught there in this text. Weird, really like super creepy weird. And our relationships will either make us or break us. I'll just park there for a second. Our relationships, the type of people we surround ourselves with, are going to make us or break us very often when it comes to spiritual health. Because people have a huge and significant input into our lives, into our thinking, into our behavior as well. Back in the Old Testament, the psalmist, who was kind of like the the top ten of the day, you know, was writing these songs, said, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. You know, some people like Derek Redmond's dad, when they come alongside us, they're going to help us finish the race of life. You know, you know those type of people, don't you? They come along, you, you've fallen down, you know, you feel as if I can't get back up again, but there are some people they will just come alongside you and they'll help you overcome obstacles and problems and setbacks and, and hindrances. And, and through that relationship, they are going to ensure that you finish the race. We have those type of people in our lives. But the psalmist talks about another type of, of person that we can have in our life. And do you notice the regression of this relationship? You know, yeah, you can have another type of person we can have in our life. <sighs> okay, notice these are, these are passages taken out of context. The Psalm as well as Luke 8. He never really exegeted the Luke 8 passage in the parable of the soils at all or in the seed and the sower. And now we've got this Psalm, you know, not walk in the counsel of the wicked and all that kind of stuff. As if somehow the two really hang on each other, and they don't, and they're not talking about the same thing at all, okay? You can take passages from different sections of Scripture when they are talking systematically about the same doctrine or the same concept or the same teaching and use it. it this is called Scripture interpreting Scripture, but the parable of the sower and the seeds is not about community and what types of people we should allow in our lives. And now he's interpreting that psalm in this way. And so these two are, these they don't hang together. They're not even on the same topic. So we've got a bad hermeneutic going on here to boot. And yikes. The Derek Redmond bad relationship and you're going to flourish in that. You're going to finish. But you notice what the psalmist says? You start walking with the wrong type of person. After a while, you stop walking, you come to a standstill, and eventually, because of the relationships, I mean, they have you on your butt, sitting on the ground. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat or the company of mockers. And it's it's, it's game over. That's the impact that 
many people can have. You know, I know there are people in my life, and there was a guy, Phil Orr and I, and we were just bad for each other. You know, whenever we got together, just bad things happened. You ever have any people like that in your life? On the other hand, the psalmist in one of his later hits in Psalm 92 says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. Here, here's somebody who's kind of just come to a standstill in life and is scraping around on the floor. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of God. They will flourish in the courts of our God. You see, in God's house, you find God's people. You find different types of relationships than you find in Psalm 1. And if you and I get your, our lives plugged into those types of relationships, you know, healthy spiritual relationships, then you're going to be starting to put your, your roots down into the type of soil that will enable you to flourish in life. Now, let me highlight this morning three blessings of, of belonging. Let me show you what God says, what happens when you and I get three blessings of belonging, okay? Already this is a dubious teaching because he's completely mangled the, uh, the parable of the sower and the seeds. Get our roots deep down into the right type of community, into the right type of relationships. First of all, there's protection when you're planted in God's house. Let me read again Psalm 92. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree, and they will grow like the cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. And if you look at earlier in that psalm, it talks about enemies and all sorts and problems and terrible things happening. And then he says, but the contrast is, if you can get into God's house, you're going to find protection there. Last night, we uh, had dinner with Ewan and Karen. We went all the way up to Patrick and had a great night there. And Karen was telling us about her former employer. Karen's a physiotherapist and, and her boss was a physio and she loved to go mountain climbing but foolishly she did all of her mountain climbing by herself and on this occasion she had a horrendous fall, major spinal injuries and fractures and it took her absolutely months, almost a year to recover but she was so determined and had such a positive attitude that after a year or so, you know what, she got back on the mountain again. She did the same thing all over again, all alone again. And this time she died. You know, as I think about that story, and that's a very sad story, I think about far too many Christians who have sabotaged their destiny because they're not planted in the right relationships. You've sabotaged your destiny because you're not planted in the right in translation in the right community man um boy this is very different than being confronted with your sin okay saying that listen the reason why you're suffering the reason why your life has gone off the rails these are the consequences of your sin that you've committed against a holy and just god by breaking his commandments, by you know being you were born dead in trespasses and sins and rebellion against God, you need to repent and to be forgiven of your sins by the shed blood of Christ. That's one thing. But now here we've got this other story. Apparently, you're just a victim of choosing the wrong community to be a part of. 
salvation by better choice and community selection, that's not the gospel. That's something very different. They're not planted in the, in the right community or they just simply want to do all things alone. And the Proverbs talks about like dogs to vomit. They just keep going back again to destructive patterns of behavior, to destructive living and, and decisions, and it ends up taking them off the course. But the other side of that is when you and I are planted in a community of faith, you know what? You're going to have people, if we're living right, that are going to encourage you daily. They're going to bring godly wisdom into your life. And if necessary, they're going to love you enough. They're going to love on you. And if necessary, they're going to love you enough when you're in relationship with them and you start making decisions that's maybe potentially going to end up as a shipwreck in your life. They're going to love you enough to say, do you know what? Have you not considered what potentially that decision might make? That's protection that happens when you're planted in the right community. Now, I try not to get involved with, with in marriage counseling. We, we kind of help. So notice, this is basically a, a quote, sermon that takes extreme liberties with the biblical text, completely ignoring what the biblical text says, and basically says, listen, the solution to your problem is to get plugged into a faith community. And the reason being is that the people, the members in the faith community, that's the good soil, and those people are going to help encourage you to do better things. Law, not gospel. So this is salvation by community. Absolutely frightening. Get, get people to professionals. Uh, and I, I try not to serve where I, I'm not gifted. But time and time again, you know, we've, people have had problems. They ask you for advice and then suddenly you're giving them what they don't want to hear. <laughs> but if you're planted in the right community, you're going to hear God's word to you. Ask everybody else in your office and they'll tell you, well, you're not happy, just get out of there, yeah? But when you're planted in God's house, you're going to hear a different story. You're going to hear about a God who can resurrect dead emotions. God who can... What? A God who can resurrect dead emotions? You got a Bible verse that says that? Resurrect the feelings. God that can bring marriages back together. You will God can resurrect feelings that will bring marriages back together won't hear that in most workplaces but that's what you'll hear when you're you get your roots down deep into the house of god so there's protection that we find in god's house when the enemy is seeking to pull you down a second blessing of, of belonging and having your roots into a biblically functioning community is that a church family moves you out of selfish and self-centered isolation Right, yeah. So you, you cease to exist as an individual, selfish, uh, self-centered isolation, and now you are part of the organic living community. I'm telling you, folks, this is folkish, fascist ideology we're hearing, not biblical teaching. I, I often tell the story about, you know, like I'm sure at Christmas time as all the photographs have come out and maybe got some of those photographs printed and i often say you know every single human being has an eye problem don't we when, when you look at those photographs those christmas ones the first thing you're looking for is where am i in it yeah <laughs> yeah is that right 
Oh, there I, there I am. And then every, the whole, everything else kind of gets framed then about, around where am I? But you know what? Living that self-centered, isolationist type of life isn't the way of Jesus. In the New Testament, there are 58 one another's. For instance, like in Ephesians 4, it says, be kind and compassionate to one another and forgive one another and stuff. Well, that's true that there are one another's mentioned in Scripture, but it's not an either or thing. You're, you're basically engaging in a bifurcation fallacy here that it's somehow either or, but it's both and. There are texts that address us individually, and there are texts that address us collectively as the body of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Like that. God wants us to be loving for him, loving and praying and encouraging and helping and serving and, and, and forgiving one another. But let me say that if, if we're not planted in the community of faith, how can we obey? How can we practice what Jesus has, the type of life that Jesus has called us to live? Notice the emphasis here. Um, how come I'm not hearing the gospel? Can you tell me about what Jesus did for me again, please? This is all law, no gospel. By the way, uh, we'll get, we're going to be reviewing another sermon from this pastor later this week. Um, in fact, the next one in the series. I, I, it's too important to not do both of these. But I wanted to do this one first to lay a foundation here. There's something really going squirrely wrong here. Not only is it all law, no gospel. Now it's salvation through the community and an apologetic against the individual. How are you going to grow out of a me-first mindset if you're not planted in community? You see, when you're single without any spouse and without any kids, the whole world does revolve around you. But you know what happens when you get married and I mean, you start to have kids, suddenly everything changes and you're, you're thinking about the good of the family. You know, we're thinking about, are we going to be able to go on holiday this year? Okay, I know where I would love to go. <laughs> but it's not about where I would love to go. It's about what's the best for the family. So it's not about me. It's about others because I'm in that family. And that's what happens when we get planted and rooted into the local church. Our own selfishness is confronted and we start thinking about the needs of others. Only when we see the needs of others is my own selfishness challenged. Almost two years ago, Ben Dalglish and Martin, who's an elder down in our southern congregation, we went to India to visit uh, Bangalore, and Carol's out there at the moment. And one of the places we went to was the Ark, the Home of Hope, and uh, Hundreds of destitute and dying from the streets of Bangalore are brought to that place. They get medical attention. They maybe have TB or they have AIDS or severe mental health issues and nobody's caring for them. And I mean, it just breaks your heart as soon as you arrive there. But God's doing, through Otto Raja, the man who leads, God's doing amazing work and people are coming to Christ and they have a fountain there and they don't tell the authorities, but... Can I, so many people come to Christ that every week they fill the fountain and they have their baptisms. Yeah. <laughs> and Carol's there at the moment. There's hundreds, you know, hundreds literally from the streets of Bangalore are there. And uh, when we arrived, you can go on my Facebook and see some of the photographs. But the first thing that met us were dead bodies. You know, people are dying there every day, di- dying good deaths. You're having me introduced to Jesus and being looked after and cared for. And 
and stuff like that. But the first time I was ever introduced to that. But well, on the first trip up to uh, see Otto Raja, uh, we went up this dusty path and on a four-wheel jeep, and it's about two miles up this dusty path. And suddenly, about halfway up the path, I noticed this wall. And I was like, well, that's different for India. You know, it's kind of, that's sharp. Okay, notice here we're hearing a lot of life stories of his and not biblical passages in context. That's always a red flag. Always a red flag. Um, His job is to preach the word, but we're not hearing God's word preached. Not in context. Not by what it says in context and paying close attention to the grammar. He's run roughshod over every biblical text that he's quoted so far. Now we're into a life story that somehow proves some point that he started with in his own mind, but didn't exegete from the scripture. And then in between bits of the wall, I can see, oh, look at the grass behind there. Look at those. For goodness sake, it's like little America in there. You can just see this is this huge compound and buildings and all sorts of things. And, and then we finally came to the doorway and it said, Southeast Asia Theological Seminary. And it was interesting because Carol will tell you the story, and I don't mean to give anybody a, a hard time, that they just struggle and just can't get these theological students <laughs> to leave their books and actually come and serve in the ark, which is just across the way from them. I mean, thank God for theological education, and we need rigorous theological studies. And, but these people are coming up with masters and PhDs, but because they, they don't want to be exposed to the need... Notice how the narrative is working here. Um, my question is, has he talked with these theological students? Are they completely resistant to helping people in need? Are they just being selfishly academic? Is that what's going on? Notice the, the, how he's telling the narrative here. Somehow the pursuit of a theological education is somehow getting in the way of helping people where they really need to be helped i mean i mean based on what he's saying here the only logical conclusion that you can come to is that we've got to shut down all the theological seminaries until we get world poverty under control i mean how dare you study theology and get a phd or a master's you know in theology or doctrine or apologetics while there are people in your neighborhood who don't have a meal what kind of Christian do you think you are? Letting your theology get in the way of serving the world. See how the apologetic works? There's something really, really wrong here. That's an anti-rational argument, and he's not making it from Scripture. And so they kind of live behind the, this comfortable wall. It could be anywhere in America that you're going. That's what it feels like in that compound. You see, the Christian life isn't meant to be lived in isolation with you and a book. The Christian life is to be shared in community. Because when we get into community, suddenly we start to get exposed to needs that we've never been exposed to before. Again, notice, I mean, my question is, really, why is this an either-or? Why are you pitching it as that? It's somehow that somehow getting a theological education is indicative of not caring for people. It's not what the Scriptures say. Scriptures admonish pastors to know sound biblical doctrine and refute those who contradict it and love your neighbor. 
It's not an either-or. It's a whole package. It's life and doctrine. The two are important. You don't pit them against each other. And then we can respond to those needs. And that's how we start to live like Jesus. Live by Jesus. Again, all law, no real gospel here, and salvation by community. Hmm. You ask me, what's the best course of study that you could do, you know, would it be to go turn left into that seminary or turn right into the home of hope? You know, how am I going to become more like Jesus through reading those books and getting a PhD or uh, spending a week or two in uh, the ark? You know, I think it's going to be spending a week or two. Your life will never be the same. So a two-week experience, you know, is going to make you more like Jesus than the Word of God. Hmm. Second Timothy Chapter 3, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, completely equipped, for every good work. Hmm. Yeah, his ideas are in direct opposition and contradiction to what God's Word says. We've got a problem here. And even in the local church, all too often as followers of Jesus, we build our own walls. And we, we, we build uh, the Walton, remember the Walton family? We build Walton family dynamics. I mean, I, I challenge all of our new families about having child-centered homes. You know, we build a Walton family dynamic, and that isn't what God wants. I mean, one of the things that really challenged me when I was chatting with Charlotte when she was over, she was saying about how important, no matter how busy you are, that your kids see you ministering to the needs of others. And in today's church, so many parents hide behind their kids. We can't do anything. You know, oh, we've just got a baby, so we can't do anything now. Oh, they're a toddler, we can't do anything now. Well, when they reach primary school, then we might be able to, when they reach second, then we might be able to. So many parents are hiding behind their kids, whereas what your kids need to be exposed to is the fact that there are needs out there. And as a family, we're committed to picking up a basin and a tile, and we're going to serve those needs. Notice how he said that in such a way that somehow it's not God's will for you to be a good parent, yet there are clear passages that tell parents to be good parents. That is truly a good work because God says so in his word. Weird. And that only happens when we get plugged into the spiritual family, when we get plugged in to a biblically functioning community and get our roots down deep. Then suddenly the needs are exposed. The selfishness is exposed. And we start to become more like Jesus. And thirdly, the third blessing of belonging, the third blessing of having your roots in a biblically functioning community is, you know what, we get to build what Jesus is building. You know, the Bible kind of gives us a hint that Jesus was a carpenter. And in fact, 
I'm sure that anything he made would be a bit of like the Mona Lisa of chairs and tables. Can you, when you think that? But never once, you know, are those types of items the type of things that the writers refer to that Jesus ever built. It's not right. It wasn't about the business. He, you know, at the end, the life wasn't about The highlight wasn't, you know, the business that he had. What did he say? I'm going to build. Well, here's the line I committed my life to. I'll tell you, Peter, uh, you're Peter and on this rock. I'm going to build what? I'm going to build my church. You see, when we face Jesus, when we see Jesus face to face, I mean, as a, as a believer, you're not going to sit in the judgment before Jesus. But we have like an award ceremony Paul talks about in, in Corinthians. Where we give an account for what have you done with what I've deposited in you. And when we see Jesus face to face, he's going to ask us, you know, everything spiritual, Jonathan. How did you leverage everything spiritual, Jonathan? How did you did you hear that? Everything spiritual. That's a key phrase. Who made that phrase popular, by the way? Rob Bell. This guy's preaching postmodern collectivist folkish ideology, not biblical theology. And on top of it, he's twisting God's word and he's preaching all law and not the gospel. The influence in your workplace. How did you leverage that great family I blessed you with? How did you leverage your interests, your, your sporting abilities? How did you leverage those in order to build the church? Because that's the only thing I can see in the Bible that Jesus is really interested in building. Uh huh. Yeah. So apparently, if you don't build the church, well, you got some you got some explaining to do. Everything else just kind of is along the way, so that we can use that for the advancement of His kingdom. Because the, the 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 church is the vehicle through which the kingdom is advanced on earth. Did we invest our time, our talents, our treasure? The vehicle through which the kingdom is advanced. I'd like to know what, how he defines those terms. In the local church, in the community of faith. Or did we simply just go for bigger barns and a hedonistic lifestyle? Jesus loved the church. He gave his life for the church. And when you and I put down our roots into the soil of the local church, when we put our roots in the community, we get to build what Jesus held most dear. Hear this today. We belong together. Right? No matter what color our skin, no matter what country we've come from, no matter our age or our gender, whatever our struggles, whatever our cultural uniqueness, as far as God's concerned, we are family. We belong together. And we need to get our roots down deep, not into a building or a building project, but we need to get our roots down deep into people who are filled with the life and the presence of Jesus. You know, on Saturday nights, I, I'm a, I still love my movies, but on Saturday nights, I used to love watching all the old you know, Hammer House of Horrors. You remember those black and white movies? You know, with the vampire bat, you can see the strings on its wings and stuff like that. And there was one called The Hands. And what happened was this hand had been cut off and had been exposed to radiation. 
And because it had been exposed to radiation, it had a life of its own. And there's this black and white movie and there's all this suspense and the woman's washing the dishes and the creepy music and the front door bell rings and she goes out and opens the door and there's nobody there. But all of a sudden this hand, you know, lunges around her neck and has her on the ground, the hand, you know, uh, strangling the life out of her. And, you know, it was very scary, but there's only one problem. You know what? The hand is dead. You mean, the hand can't function by itself. It needs to be attached to the body. And likewise, you and I, as the family of God, are described as members of a body And as believers, when we are not planted and rooted in that body and rooted in community and rooted in the local church, actually, as far as God's concerned, we're pretty powerless because the power comes and flows through being properly connected to the body. You know, lone rangers and people who dip in their toes in the 101 different fellowships have little power or strength and the enemy knows it. They're never going to do anything substantial for the kingdom because power comes through being connected to Jesus' body. And where is Jesus' body? (laughs) We are the body of Christ. How do I know that? That's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a unique part. Earlier on, he talked about the hand and the foot. The foot can't say, I don't need you, and the eye can't say, I don't need you. We're all together in this. Every follower needs to get fully connected. And we'd love it if you made a conscious decision that living hope was the soil is going to be the best place for you to grow. But let me also share with you, my experience tells me that we're not always the best soil for people to grow. There are other great churches on the Isle of Man And always about this time of the year, I always challenge people saying, for goodness sake, if for whatever reason you don't think you're going to grow or you haven't been growing or thriving here, please don't be disobedient for another year. Let's help you find good soil that's going to be the type of soil that helps you grow and thrive. Let's be honest, the, the kingdom is bigger than any local church. God's passion is that we all get connected, rather than making excuses, well, I'm waiting 10 years for that church to change the way I want it to be. Guys, it's never going to happen. I'm too bullshit for that to happen. <laughs> but there are other, I'm sure if we aren't the type of soil, then there are other churches, let me tell you. And we'd love the, because it's about advancing God's kingdom, the Great Commission, is about the universal church working together. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was about going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching um, all that Christ has commanded. Notice all the deviations from what the Scripture says. He's not saying the same thing the Scripture says. He's saying something very, very different. But in order to thrive, guys, it needs to be commitment somewhere not drifting, you know, marriage is a commitment. It needs to be worked at. Nothing great in relationships or business or sports, anything that ever happens without a great commitment. You know what, but if if you've been coming... What did he do with the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross and repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name? 
it's clear he's been heavily influenced by postmodern emergent ideologues, not Christian theology. For a while, and you kind of sense this might just be the place where God wants me to get planted. We'd love to, not Tuesday night in a few weeks' time, share with you what it means to be planted in the family of, of Living Hope. If you haven't gone public as a believer, we've got water, 24, we've got 365 days a year. Here we go again. Go public as a believer. The Bible does not use any of that language when it comes to baptism. I propose a radical idea. Let's only say what Scripture says regarding baptism. Plain and simple. The year. Or if you need some warm water, if you're a bit of a wuss, then... Uh, because Chris just, he wants to baptize people in the winter, don't you, Chris? Exactly, yes. Well, let me quickly, time's gone. We did start late, but time's just about gone. How can I get planted into a healthy community? First of all, choose that to which you're going to be devoted. Make a choice what you're going to be devoted about. It says, make a choice to be devoted to a community. That's not the same as repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is very different. In Acts 2, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship the sharing meals and the prayer. And if you want to get planted... The breaking of bread, that would be a, an allusion to the Lord's Supper. And it's not that they decided to commit themselves to a community. Notice the text says, in all the believers. This is in Acts chapter 2, right after Peter's great Pentecost sermon, where he, they, he basically cuts them to the quick, tells them they're all sinners, that they're guilty of crucifying the, the Messiah, and they say, what, brothers, what shall we do? He says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. They repent, believe, are forgiven, baptized. Now they're believers, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the prayers, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, right? This text is not given because, as, as an explanation for how do you devote yourself to a community thereby which you can be saved and do good things in the world? You know what? It's a choice that comes from within. It doesn't say all the believers were smacked on the head by their pastors and told you have to do this. This is something that comes from within, a realization. Look at this plant I brought with me today. Isn't that in? Is she in? Good. <laughs> because, you know, it looks good. It looks healthy. I don't know how many years we've been growing this for. I know it doesn't clean the drains in the house. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. But what would happen if I take this plant out of the... We're going to need a vacuum cleaner today, aren't we? Yeah. What would happen if I took the plant out of the pot and put it in there? And then, you know, a few days later, weeks later, we start putting it in another pot. And then we start putting it into another pot. Please, guys, don't walk this into the carpet. <laughs> you know, what do you think the health of this is going to be like? I mean, that's only... 30 seconds, but huh, goodness sake, that's a bit messy. <laughs> Let's just move over here a second, Jim. <laughs> what do you think it's what do you think the health of that plant's gonna be like if it keeps kinda going around and we try to you know keep it in one place for a little and then they keep digging it up? What do you think it's gonna be like? Do you think it's gonna what? I'm gonna kill it. You know what, friends? A lot of Christians, that's how they're behaving on the Isle of Man. Not getting planted anywhere. Little offense comes along, misunderstanding. But I'm not staying in that church anymore. Let's go there. Oh, new pastor comes along, don't like him. No, that's going to go there. Or we are there on a Sunday morning. Hallelujah. 
Wednesday night, oh, praise the Lord. Saturday night, guzzle, guzzle, guzzle. And you're kind of moving soils. I mean, we need to live in the world, don't we? Otherwise, how are we going to reach the world? But so many of us, rather than trying to influence the world, all we're doing is jumping from one pot to the next. And how are we ever going to grow in a healthy way? All we're doing is damaging the root system, and we're going to kill ourselves. That isn't God's plan. Yeah, but you haven't really sufficiently shown me anything clearly from Scripture in context that tells me what God's plan is. You, keep, you just make these assertions that float out there in midair that aren't anchored to any clear, in-context biblical text. God's plan is for us to get planted into God's house. It's devotion. It's choosing. It's choosing those relationships. You're in charge of your diary. You're in charge of your time. Will I be devoted to the house of God? Will I be devoted to these people? And will I fit in the other stuff around them? Or will I give the house of God my leftovers? After I've done all these things, if I can get around to it, maybe I'll start to try to get some relationships in God's house. You know what? God wants to be first in our life. First. Seek first the kingdom. He wants to be first in our... And his righteousness. In context, that's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus chastising the people on who are listening to a sermon, the Jews. You know, do not worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, right? God cares for you more than he cares for the grass of the field and for the birds of the air. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And he chastised them for being ones of little faith. In context, he's, Jesus is saying to look for the righteousness that comes by faith. That's what Hosea says, you know, that the righteous will live by faith. Or you can even translate, the one who is righteous by faith shall live This is, again, repeated in the book of Romans, chapter 3. The righteousness of God that is by faith. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And here you're pointing to law when Jesus is pointing to gospel. Interesting. Finances, first in our interests, first in our relationships, first in our schedules, first in our troubles. Really, it's about belonging to community and learning how to share. That's one of the greatest problems with kids, isn't it? Teaching kids how to share. Share what? Share life. All the believers met together and constantly and shared everything they had. They weren't Sunday Christians and Sunday Wednesday night. They just shared life together. They shared their possessions together. Let me tell you, I mean, it's great to see what happens in our church. Recently, last week, people share cars. You need groceries. We had a a fun night on Friday night with the boys. I need a blue torch. Where am I going to get a blue torch from? Oh, Keegan's a plumber. I'll just phone him up. I'm not thinking because I'm the pastor, he might. I'm thinking he's family. My brother would my brother would do that for me, wouldn't he? That's how God wants us to think. We're brothers and sisters. We're not users of each other, but that's the depth that God wants us to be. We share a life together. You know, so why wouldn't Jamie want me to borrow his beamer if I was in trouble, eh? Yeah, no. You know, one careful driver. <laughs> they shared experiences. People learn from each other, the Bible says, just as iron sharpens iron. 
You know, so I surround myself with better marriages than me, who know how to do business and all sorts of things and been through hurts and pain. They, they, I want to, you know, that's how we grow in life. They shared their homes. Open up your homes, Peter says. In Acts chapter 2, it says they move from house to house. So now, out of context again, all these verses that really describe the true fruits of repentance and the true fruit of the Holy Spirit in people's lives as a result of them being brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and being regenerated and reborn. And yet he's preaching all of these fruits as imperatives, yet all of them are shown to be fruit that comes about as a result of the indicatives in the text. Interesting. That's what we try to encourage as a church. Small groups during the week, you know, oh, let's meet in my home because we're family. You know, we open up our home. We don't need a clinical environment. We just want to share our houses, have our houses. I think, I mean, a qualification for an elder is hospitality. Why on earth would that be there? Yeah, and one of the uh, the other <laughs> other requirements is the ability to rightly handle God's word and to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. You don't meet that qualification clearly based upon this sermon. You don't meet that qualification. Because God's saying this is foundational to the type of church that he's wanting to build. It's a it's family. It's opening up the home. It's not a guy dressed in a, a dress and a frock at the front. Rumpty, tumpty, tumpty. <laughs> He's saying, oh, this is to be a family. And then we share our problems. Share each other's problems, it says in Galatians 6. That's why you know, it was so good this morning for Selu and Cara to share. That is intimate. That is deep. Can somebody get the door, please, quick? <laughs> Thank you. That is intimate. That is deep. And you're saying, oh, that's letting it all hang out today. That's kind of sharing a bit too Okay, two of my elders, can you just sort that out at the back there? Thank you. Can you know that? What I mean, they're sharing that. We don't talk about. We don't talk about the womb. We don't talk about, you know, children. We don't talk about miscarriage at the front. Of the, do we? Do we talk about that? We we do. We family. We do have our family. We share our problems because we can pray for each other. We can encourage each other. That's a type of community that God wants us to get plugged into. Let's just have our heads bowed and eyes closed before I'm in the data by the kids. No, we're done. You don't get to pray for us. Strange, strange sermon. Again, it has nothing to do with sound biblical doctrine. This is nothing but some kind of ideological concept regarding salvation through a community involvement and it twisted God's word to, you know, to boot. Strange, strange indeed. Yeah, like I said, we're going to be reviewing another one of these sermons, another sermon from this uh, church later in the week. But I wanted to get this in here because I think this shows the wellspring, gives us the radar fix of, you know, where this church is coming from. This is clearly post-modernity. It's folkish. It's fascistic. And that's clear Bible twisting, and some buzzwords that I hear from the emergent church, not God's word rightly taught, rightly proclaimed, and the gospel in Christ and him crucified for us, for our sins proclaimed. None of that at all. Very dangerous, very strange. 
So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.